Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. Thanks for listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on this Tuesday evening. It's good to be back live this week. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. Thank you again for joining us for the program. And we want to make sure it's not just you joining us, so go ahead and WhatsApp a friend or call down the hallway or to your neighbor or to your relative, even if they're elsewhere in the world, they don't have to be in the Caribbean. They can listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org. But go ahead and remind others that That's Truth is on this evening, and we are talking this evening about feminism. But before we continue that discussion on feminism, Pastor, I recently, this last week, saw a Christian promoting this idea very vehemently. And the statement they kept using is, it's time to stop fighting about who created the world and start fighting those who are destroying it. Is that a good standpoint for a Christian to have from a biblical worldview? Well, I personally think that the individual who made that, made that statement is probably wrapped up in this global warming phenomenon and the idea of the ecological crisis that the world is talking about. Um, I would just like to to say that our primary job as Christians, we're not to save the planet. We're to save people's soul because the planet is um, headed to an eschatological doom. A a catastrophe is going to end this planet Earth. However, that doesn't mean that we should not emphasize the role of man as a steward uh, because even though God has given man dominion, uh, he's given, given that dominion under the headship of stewardship, so he's responsible for how he takes care of the planet. But I think it's a, a mistake for us to go around trying to save the planet rather than and focus on saving people's souls. I remember some years ago when I was in um, St. Lucia, uh, there was a Christian pastor who had uh, was pastoring a church, and he got wrapped up in... Um, what it's called at that time, Saving the Bananas. He formed an organization called the Banana Salvation Committee. And it was almost comical that he would go around uh, trying to save the bananas, and he was neglecting his church to the point where eventually the church almost went to ruin. Uh, I think he got distracted, and I think a lot of people can get distracted in this way as well. Let me just say as well that, look, man is not going to destroy this planet. Uh, it is clear that God will initiate the destruction of planet Earth, according to this, the, the, uh, according to the prophetic scriptures. Um, and the other thing is that 
natural phenomenon doesn't control the nature and control the planet and control uh, the weather. If you read the book of the Psalms, you'll see that God is the one that sends storms, he sends rain, he sends hail. So the idea that uh, man is in total control and what man does is completely ruining planet Earth, I, I don't support that one bit. Uh, I think a lot of this global emphasis on uh, uh, ecological control and, and global warming, I think behind it all is the desire to control nations by a limited uh, elitist group who wants to tell people how to use their resources. So I, I don't just see it as uh, something that is fundamentally um, all about the wrongdoing that is being done by the misuse and abuse of power, uh, sources of power. But I do feel that behind all of this is the desire to globally control the resources of countries and nations. And while I do not discount that man is contributing towards global warming, um, I do not believe that um, what is happening is going to end up where man is actually destroying planet Earth. The Bible is very, very clear on this matter. So Christians need to focus and make the priority the winning of souls and the reaching of men and discipling of people rather than focus on saving the planet. That doesn't mean that we must be reckless in our use of the planetary resources, but at the same time, we must not be distracted as well. This evening, we're continuing our discussion on feminism. And two weeks ago, we discussed what feminism is. Uh, just a real brief overview. Uh, Pastor Trace, the roots of feminism through the 1800s and the 1900s and now to the current day, 2019. Some of the subgroups within feminism and the fact that there's a push on reproductive rights and abortion. Uh, there are also the complaints that they have against the church or their beef with the church. Uh, we discussed what the agenda is of the secular feminist and that there is even a movement uh, referred to as the evangelical feminist movement. Pastor, anything else you'd like to uh, touch quickly on before we jump into new material? Well, um, the other thing I emphasize is that the secular feminists have a, a very clear agenda. Um, I mentioned that they're trying to restore the old paganistic system of uh, goddesses. Uh, they're trying to restore witchcraft as a peculiar skill that women have, and men have tried to um, use that uh, against women as something that is evil, when in truth and fact it's a display of women's skill and wisdom and knowledge. And then they have the plan of uh, legalizing abortion so that women would not be tied down to having to take care of children. They want to get rid of marriage, and uh, they they don't believe that women should be tied to uh, within a relationship of marriage. Uh, they want they're advocating that women seek alternative means of sexual fulfillment through lesbianism. They think that men have coined that term lesbian in order to uh, prejudice public opinion against them. And uh, so it's a, and of course the whole plan is to get rid of this. Um, patriarchal God of the Bible because that's the whole problem why women have been kept down and uh, this idea of a male God that you find in scriptures but before there was a male God uh, during the Canaanite times there were the female God Ashtoreth and it's just Jehovah and Yahweh that came along and as a result the suppression of, of, of female matriarchal society in the past so they want to restore all of that it's an it's a evil plan that has an anti-God, anti-Bible emphasis. 
And the whole idea is to get from under the constraints of biblical truth and biblical restraints and return to what I might call neo-paganism, uh, where women pretty much dominate the world, as I said, it was before this male god came on the scene. I'd just like to make that comment because that's why I warned, um, I think someone asked a question, should Christians be identified as, as feminists? And I warned them because the, the connotation of the word feminism uh, is very, very negative and it connotes uh, certain things that are very anti-God and anti-Bible, and Christians ought to be careful that they're not joining a bandwagon and losing their testimony and witness because they're applying words to themselves that have uh, these negative connotations. I want to spend some time talking about the secular feminists and their, their hatred for the Bible and for God. Is there a basis for that when you look at the Bible? And I guess the question would be, how were women really treated in the Bible? Because I came across a statistic here. It says that only 55 to 8% of those individuals mentioned in the Bible are female. And therefore, that's proof that the Bible, according to this source, that the Bible is trying to hold women down. What does the Bible really say about women and do about women? Well, I, I think if we... Um would go back to the book of Genesis, uh, it would be very, very clear um, how God viewed men and how God viewed women. Um, the Genesis account that we have in the first three chapters uh, is that God created male and female, so there must be this gender distinction. This is this is rooted in the creation story and is part of the creation plan of God that they be male and female. So clearly when you come to Genesis, there is a male and a female distinction. Also, when you come to the Genesis story, it is very clear that male and female are made in the image of God. Uh, Both are made in the image of God. This gives uh, to male and female um, value and worth and dignity. Uh, So there's no inferiority in terms of value or dignity uh, when it comes to male and female. It talks about wholeness between the two. The other thing that is very, very clear for the creation story, and the Apostle Paul alludes to this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, is that the order in which God made uh, male and female, uh, there was a distinct purpose that God had in mind. It was not accidental or just a happenstance thing that happened. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that God intended that there be a hierarchy within his created order, and the fact that he made the male first and the female second, um, it was indicating clearly that the male would be the head and the woman would uh, would serve unto him. But isn't that a chauvinistic perspective there? Well, whatever is a chauvinistic perspective from how we look at it, the fact that this is the biblical norm, God has the right to establish what he wants to establish. The whole the whole thing today is rebellion against Scripture and rebellion against God. We are not, uh, we are not um, intended to serve the rules we were uh, intended to serve, the functions we're supposed to function. And that's part of the whole rebellion against God, because God has set out certain distinctions within the family, certain distinctions within the church. And what we have a rebellion within the home and we have rebellion within the church, the same thing happens in society. God has established the powers that be to be the one that rule the countries. Uh, and there's no authority that except God has established an authority. So you've got rebellion at every quarter against authority because uh, t- take the problem with children and parents. You've got rebellion 
rebellion there again. Children don't want to uh, come under the rule and the control of parents. They want a level of equality. It's all fundamentally the group problem is the whole matter of rebellion against established order that God has started even from the very inception of creation. But when you go to the creation order, this is where you establish the basic principle of what God's intent was. I cannot emphasize that too much, that we got to find out what was God's intention, what did God really want. The fall, of course, distorted all of this. So if we want to understand what God's ideal is, what God's plan is. And by the way, that's why after uh, the believers converted and Paul is talking about these matters like in Ephesians and Timothy, Paul goes back to the creation order to show this is what God intends. So you fall in line with what God uh, has intended rather than just going away the way the world wants to. Um, the other thing is that um, when you come to the the creation story, it is very, very clear that God created male and female with a need for each other. Adam uh, was told he would create a, a helpmeet. Uh, that is one that is compatible, one that is complementary. Women have assets, and uh, women have gifts and talents, and women have qualities that men don't have. The same also goes for men. Men have qualities and distinctions that women don't have. The whole idea was to bring male and female together, bring about this completeness. So in a sense, uh, I don't want to say that man was created with a void, but clearly when you go to the Genesis account, when God wants to create in Adam a desire for mate, he presents all the animals to Adam, and Adam sees elephant and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. Elephant walking together, <laughs> you know, and he begins to realize something is missing. How come I'm the only male here? And I don't have a companion. But that was not accidental. It was to, to let him understand that God's intent, really, that something was missing. Now, remember that Adam and God has communion in heaven, I mean, uh, on earth, before the fall. So it's not as though uh, he doesn't have a personal thing with God. But at the level of humanity, he's missing a companion. And that is part of the creation story. That's how God intended it, to, to stir this need in him so that he began to realize that when he got his partner, he found a woman that would complete him. And that's what marriage is about. It's to bring two people who got different gifts, different talents, um, um, uh, different virtues as well, um, and bringing them together to complete each other. So when you come to the, the uh, conquer the Bible, it's not as though God is elevating man above woman, a woman, in such a because he's superior to her or that she's inferior. Uh, they're absolutely, they're, so, they're designed to complement each other. Um, I think when you go back to that that story uh, in Genesis, uh, it is very very clear that women, women and men in the terms of value and dignity that the Genesis account is not intended in any way to suggest inferiority. May I put this away? You know, within the Godhead, there's a hierarchy. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You notice that the, the Son submits to the Father, and we find that the Holy Spirit comes from both the Father and the Son. There's a hierarchy. Even in eternity, there's a hierarchy. And I think that what, when he created uh, man and earth, it was to reflect that hierarchy within the creation order. Uh, this is how God intends it. He's God. We, we're just creatures. We ought to follow His order. So that's the first thing I would like to say uh, as far as that is concerned. When you come to the um, the teachings of Christ and the ministry of Christ, um, again, in the New Testament, you'll find that His interaction with, with women uh, revealed a genuine respect for their capacity and uh, 
their contribution to the kingdom of God is so clear uh, in terms of how he dealt with them. There were the women that ministered to him when he was doing his itinerary work. Uh, remember, a woman was the first one to see him after the resurrection. Remember, a woman was the first one that was given the, 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 the glad tidings to carry to the other disciples. And remember that, this is amazing, by the way, that he would do this because in the, uh, at the time, the first century world, within the courts of, of, um, of um, Palestine, a woman's testimony didn't carry any weight. Hmm. But yet he used her to carry the greatest message uh, to the world. I think all of that uh, indicates his, 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 uh, the value that he placed uh, upon women. So I think that when you study the creation story and then you look at the life of Christ and how he dealt with women, I think it becomes very, very clear in those areas that um, the Bible is not in any way um, putting women at the inferior level. The other thing is that if you were to go through the scriptures and see the prominent role that women played in the Bible, uh, it becomes very clear that God affirms uh, women in multiple spheres, in the home, in the family, in religion, public life, and also even when it comes to business pursuits. Um, the reason why you might find that there's a less emphasis on the number of women that are highlighted in the Bible vis-a-vis -vis the amount of men is because, remember, the Bible is written within the cultural context, the social context of the ancient world. Uh, and um, as the story develops, um, um, dealing with the, the redemptive story, there are certain legal things that are important. For example, the, the legal rights passed to the male is not to the, the woman. That is why uh, the Bible is very selective when it's writing the, the canonical books that God superintended. And God uh, made uh, emphasis to include those persons who were decisive in the salvation history of the Messiah coming. And that's why the male plays such an important part. It goes through from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and down the line because in the social structure of the time, the, the legal line falls to the male, and, and that was necessary. So if that's the case, if the social norms of the time affected how the Bible was written, couldn't you make the argument that the social structure of today's world should affect how we interpret the Bible or change what it says? No, I'm not I'm not saying that that is a total reason for it. Okay. Because as I read, some of these things are rooted in the creation story, what God's order was. But I'm trying to explain why it was so important to highlight the male feature because the legal line falls in that, that area. I don't think that's a basis because... Um, and again, you've got to decide in the, in the scriptures uh, what is socially applicable, what's an ad hoc application to a particular local condition, uh, which is a universal transcendent truth that goes across all cultures. I mean, we need to do that. But I'm just trying to explain the reason why there's such emphasis on the male factor, because God works when God, you know, we got to remember that God works through human history. And God works with man at the stage of human development. He has to work within the culture. For example, a lot of people uh, would talk about the fact that slavery, for example, that would come up at some point in time in one of our discussions. The Bible never, never uh, created slavery. The Bible never, ever, in any way, endorsed slavery. What God did was to regulate what was there in place as a social system and an economic system to put restraints on it, right? But not that God imposed slavery as a... As a, as a that's not, you don't find it in the Bible, but he controlled it. It's just like divorce. Clearly the Bible makes it clear that it's not God's will that there be divorce. But... Uh, because of the hardness of the heart, he tolerated it, and he gave Moses the written letter. But that's not his plan. 
right? So there are times that God works within the parameters of the social system, but you've got to find out ultimately by going back to his original purpose, what his intent is, and let his intent guide your decision-making. But coming back to the uh, the Bible, when you go through the Bible, for example, and I would like to perhaps go through several of the women characters, to take the, the matter of Sarah, um, you, do you recognize that Sarah was as crucial to the Abrahamic covenant as Abraham was? Let me tell you why. Tell you why, because Abraham had another son whose name was what? Ishmael. Ishmael. But remember that Isaac had to come through Abraham and Sarah, not just through Abraham, because Abraham had a son called Isaac. It was important that Sarah played a major part in the Abrahamic covenant. So to suggest that it was Abraham was just the the, the, the main player is to miss the whole point that even though Abraham had a son, he was not part of the covenant promise. Sarah was part of that as well. So that she shows that she plays an equally important role as Abraham did because he had a child before Isaac was born but that was not the seed of promise so you can see that God, uh, Sarah was part of God's plan in terms of the, the Abrahamic covenant etc I, I mentioned the matter uh, sometime uh, last time I think with Hagar uh, interesting that substantially uh, God's care for Abar, uh, Hagar is amazing remember get the word um, Jehovah Jireh that God will provide uh, remember that it is through uh, her that we get this this particular word. Also, she is one of the three women that engage in God with a dialogue. Of the three women in the Bible that did that, she happens to be one. Uh, so it is significant that she is she is a minor player. But when you see that the role that she had was very 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 unique, and God made some promises to Hagar equally as he made to the Jews. He talked about uh, that out of her would come nations. And today we have in the Middle East the Arab nations that came out of her as well. So she paid a very, very... Notice that it's not her husband. It is through Hagar that the Arabs are going to come. So to say that she didn't play a significant role uh, is to miss the point. And then, of course, we come to Rebecca. Uh, she is a major player because she's fall in the lane, the messianic lane. Remember that <coughs> when Isaac sent his servant to, to get a wife for Isaac, when uh, Abraham to get a servant for Isaac, remember that um, she was the one that chose to come. It was given to her, do you want to go with this man or you don't want to go with this man? Her, her, her daddy didn't mandate that she goes. It was a free choice that she made. And remember as well that she consulted the Lord, should I go with this man or not? So, uh, again, it's not as though women were so dominated. They didn't have choices. They didn't make decisions. When you come to a story like this, everything depended on whether or not she wanted to go and her in, 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 uh, relationship with God. Then we come, of course, to Joshebek, which is Moses' mom. Could I ask you a question? Who saved Moses? was not his father. If she came up with a scheme of how to yeah. make this boat and put it in the, in the, in the river, etc., etc. So here's women's ingenuity. This is their skill. This is, this is their intuition of what needed to be done. The father plays a very minor role. She's the dominant person in the salvation of uh, the saving of, of, of Moses during this time. And then, of course, we come to the Egyptian princes. Um, remember that they had um, uh, two of them called uh, the, the, the prince who... Pharaoh had made a decree to destroy all the Hebrew children, and then Pharaoh's daughter, she made the unilateral decision to save a Hebrew child. So she's making decisions, even going bypassing the, the chief monarch, who is Pharaoh the king. So uh, again, you've you got to see that it's because we put so much emphasis on the men, we miss the role of these women playing. But what if she had not adopted Moses? What had she, had they said, kill Moses? So she's a major player 
in the redemption story because Moses is part of that process as well. And then, of course, we come to the two uh, uh, midwives, uh, uh, Shifra and Puah. Uh, the decree was again to destroy the Hebrew boys uh, um, and commit genocide. And you remember, these two ladies took upon themselves to preserve the Hebrew boys when they were born, and then to say, listen, these women give birth so fast. <laughs> we, <laughs> we, 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 don't even have, we are able to, to, to commit abortion uh, in this case. But again, notice that they have taken unilateral decision, fearing God. And rather than and giving abeyance to the king and falling in line with the king, they go beyond the king and make those decisions in the interest of redemption story. And then, of course, we come to Miriam, uh, Moses' sister. We know she's a prophetess, she's a musician. And it's interesting that in Micah chapter 6, she's put on par with Moses and Aaron as on the level of equality. Uh, that's a fascinating... Uh, especially uh, in that time uh, of age. Especially in that time of age. Yeah. And then when we come to the judges... A major player in the genealogy line of Christ is, is Ruth, the Moabitess. But you know that Ruth was willing to surrender the security of her national identity, her ethnicity, uh, by leaving her culture and going with Naomi. And we all know that she became a major player because Boaz meets her, and Boaz is in the line of Jesse, who is the father of David. But think of the, the role she played. She is a key cog in the whole lineage of the Messiah. So uh, while it is claimed that the, the Bible uh, doesn't give as much emphasis, I think it's not the Bible not giving it. I think it's we, as we do with poetry, that we don't emphasize and point out these key players that, that were women as far as the redemptive story of course. And then we come to Deborah in the book of Judges. She's a prophetess. She's a musician. She's a military leader. She's a judge. And as a judge, of course, she's arbitrating disputes among the people of Israel, and then she's also a political leader. We all know that she played the political role because Barak uh, really was his moral failure, his weakness, and, and the Lord had to call her into service to play the political role. But again, <coughs> the Bible makes it, it makes Barak look so childish as opposed to uh, Deborah, who is the main leader in the whole process. And then we come to Hannah. Who made the decision to dedicate uh, the child to God? Was it her father? Was it his father? Not his father. It's it Hannah. is Hannah. Yeah, in her that, prayer. In her prayer that made yeah. that that kind of. So these are women that, and then we can come to the uh, the monarchy. Uh, you remember the time of there's a great revival under Josiah, and it's significant that uh, Josiah sends the priest and the scribe when the book is discovered to go to Huldah, who is a woman, a prophetess, to get clear instructions what to do. So she is playing a, a, a unique role, again, a very prominent role in the time when revival is going on. Now, when we come to the New Testament, there's Anna, the prophetess. Uh, she's the second witness to the testimony concerning our Lord's divinity and our Lord's incarnation. Um, and then there's uh, the story of Mary and Martha. Then there's the story of Mary, the first one that carried the resurrection message to the disciples. Uh, and when we come in now to Paul's epistles, uh, you know, they always blame Paul, by the way, uh, would have great scorn for the Apostle Paul, and they normally label him as a chauvinist. And uh, they say that he used a lot of sexist language, and so they jettison Paul's writings because he is, is, is viewed as a, a sexist and a, a male chauvinist. And they use a lot of anti-Paul rhetoric. But when you come to the Bible and you read um, Paul's writings, it's fascinating the amount of emphasis that Paul gives to, to women. Go down to the New Testament in the book of Acts. There's Lydia, 
that uh, Paul talks about, that she is one of the leading persons that helped start the Philippian church. Uh, in his writings, for example, in the book of Romans, Paul gives greetings to 26 different persons. Out of those 26 people, there are nine women that Paul identifies as people that were part of his ministry that helped uh, work with him hard in the ministry. So uh, it's hard to charge a man like that uh, with being a male chauvinist and using sexist language uh, when in actual fact this man uh, really, really elevates women in his writings and, and labels them as co-workers and helpers, etc. So I think if you take an overall picture of the uh, role women played, whether you work itself to the, the, the Old Testament, going from the, the book of Moses, then going to the historical books, and then you, you're moving to the New Testament, it is very, very clear that uh, women played a very, very important, prominent role. And without women playing the role that they played in the redemption story of the Bible, it would be impossible for the Messiah to have come through that line uh, that the Bible has so clearly uh, defined that he would. As you were talking, I was thinking of Esther. Uh, I recently read in a commentary that the closest that the Jews ever came to annihilation, according to this commentator, was during the time of Esther and how God used her to, uh, in her boldness, to uh, save the Jewish people. I think everybody knows that expression, if I perish, I perish. Mm -hmm. I mean, you talk about indomitable courage. Mm -hmm. She's willing to put her life in jeopardy for the salvation of her people. Uh, no one can read the book of Esther without seeing a woman of, of valor and courage. Uh, and um, she is one of the tremendous uh, women characters in the Bible and uh, confirmed the fact that the Bible uh, puts a lot of it on women and if one will take the time to trace it, you'll see that that is vindicating the Scripture. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. For this program, we are also on Facebook Live. If you want to see what goes on behind the scenes, in a call-in program, you can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video. If you have a question, a comment, whether it's about this topic or maybe it's something that someone asked you at work today or asked you recently about why the Bible says something or doesn't say something, give us a call. The phone number is one 268 462-7420. The phone line is open. Again, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. So, Pastor, in light of all that you just listed there... Would you f agree with the statement that there is really no valid basis for the venom that the uh, secular feminists seem to have in their hatred for God in the Bible? Look, if you came come to the Bible with a jaundiced eye, with a, 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 a bigoted way of view on the Bible, um, you can come to any interpretation you want to. The, the matter is to trace the whole issue, whatever topic you're dealing with throughout the Bible, and see what representation is there in respect to women. And I, my contention is that when you do that, you'll find that women uh, are elevated in the Bible, given a very prominent role, and played a major uh, aspect to the whole story of redemption story. So I, I don't think it's a fair assessment. However, <clears throat> I would say this, and I think I said it in the last program, 
when you do read some of these statements of um, some of the ancient fathers, and I think I quoted about three of them, including, um, uh, I think it was Ori- Origin was one of them for sure. Um, they made some real uh, horrible statements in connection with women that if I was a woman myself, I would feel highly offended. But that is not the statement that comes from the Bible. That's a statement that comes from men uh, who have distorted what the Bible teaches in that respect. Pastor, we have a caller from <coughs> Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead quickly with your question, please. Yeah, good, good evening to the program. Good evening, sir. Good evening. Pastor uh, Murphy, one question to you, please. Sure. Um, I, I had a little talk yesterday with a, a friend, uh-huh. and he told me that a Christian can deceive and love. Uh-huh. So I'm talking about how can a man be in God's hand, and then he can go back and love. Uh-huh. So I tell him, maybe you might lose fellowship, or you might lose rewards, but you cannot be God's child and then lose, and uh-huh. then become Satan child at the same time. Yeah. So how will you define that for me? Can a quick can be human well, life? Uh, um, we believe a person is eternally secure. If a person is genuinely saved and he becomes a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, that person is served eternally. Um, the Bible uh, says, He which has begun a good work on you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If God starts a work in your life, He will complete it. Uh, God doesn't do halfway jobs. So if He has saved the person, He will complete that redemption. What happens with some people is that there are passages in the Bible, and there's no question about it, that has created some reason to question whether or not eternal security is secure, uh, is, is finally secure. The other thing is that a lot of people judge the Bible by what they see in, in, in uh, modern life from the experience. They've seen people come to the church, make a professional faith, remain in there for a few years, seem to be doing so well, then suddenly they've left and they've gone back into the world and quite frankly they've become worse than when they started. The Bible warns about that. It's better that you don't come into the faith that after coming in, turn back. He said, the dog returns to the vomit. Now, if the Bible uses the word the dogs return to the vomit, it's because the nature would never change. Yeah. <clears throat> That's the thing. They were never saved. And people need to understand that. A lot of people have made professions that are simply not saved. They don't even know what they've done. They, they hear a message. Somebody tells them some kind of a I tear, uh, tear uh, jerking story, and they get people down the aisle, and they tell them, you repeat this prayer after me. If you repeat this prayer after me, you're saved. And then they give them two verses or three verses showing that uh, what the Bible says, and say, so now you're saved. I think that is one of the most bogus things that I've ever done to people. A person can only be saved when God begins to work in a person's heart. There must be conviction. There must be conviction. There's no conviction whatsoever. We've started the wrong foot. The Holy Spirit has to bring conviction in a person's life and bring that person to the point where they see that they're sinners, they need forgiveness, they need pardon, and bring them to the point, by the way, where they don't see themselves as good sinners, I mean as really rotten sinners. And when they reach that point of desperation, the next question is, what do I do now? The people ask uh, Peter and the day of Pentecost, what should we do? And then he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is all about. But I think we've packaged it in such a way that it's a little formula that we do. We give people, they say the little formula, and they go away feeling happy. Then 10 or 5, 15 years down the line, they realize it's just something shallow. There's nothing there. There's no meaning. There's no purpose to it. I've just said a little prayer, but I've never been changed. And uh, they get frustrated, and they walk away from the faith. And then we say, you know what? See, 
There's no such as eternal security. I think that's what happens. We must not judge the Bible by experience. We must judge experience by the Bible. And the Bible makes it very clear that if a person puts their faith and trust in Christ as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, that God has them in their hand, Christ has them in their hand, Christ is in, in God's hand, and they are eternal. No man is able to pluck them out of my hand. And the, the Greek word, by the way, is no, no, never. Is any man able to pluck them out of my hand? But I think it's the example that we see in society from people who have made professional faith that weren't genuine, weren't authentic. The other thing, by the way, I would like to say this. It is possible for a person to be saved and get away from the Lord and be back sitting for a long time. No question about that. But I would say to that person, while you're going through that back state, there has to be divine chastening in your life. God would have been chasing you during that period of time. That's the indication that you are a child of God. The Bible says if we don't endure chastening, we are bastards and we are not children. So when I'm away from the Lord and I'm in a backslidden state, the divine hand must be chasing me. And this is a vindication that even though I'm away from the God and I'm aware of it, I'm aware that His chastening hand is upon me. And that verifies the fact that I belong to Him. Look, God only chastens His children. So the fact that you're being chastened is a very clear sign you're His child. You know, I can't chase another man's child. I can chase my own child, and that's what yeah. God does. See, so I think that uh, people use the the example of other people who have made professions and gone away from the Lord and made a terrible record of life as a standard. But the Bible is very, very clear that we have eternal life, eternal life, and that is life that doesn't end. And the Bible says, "There now therefore no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus." And read Romans chapter eight, one of the greatest chapters on eternal security. What is able to separate us from the love of God? And Paul lists, shall angels, shall principalities, shall things present, things to come, shall life or death? Nothing, because we are eternally secure in him. One last thing. God takes us out of the first Adam at conversion and transfers us into the second Adam. So we are now in Christ. We are no longer in the old Adam. So we share in the life of Christ. And that is what guarantees our eternal life. So I agree with you that this save and loss phenomenon that people talk about is either as a result of the false interpretation of the Bible and uh, trying to judge Scripture by what they see and experience. But I think if you come down to a proper exegesis of the Bible, you will reach the conclusion that a person who is genuinely saved as a result of the conviction of the Holy Spirit brought to faith in Jesus Christ, that person is eternally secure. And by the way, it's not me that keep myself. I know you know that. Yeah. We are kept by the power of God. And, and as I said, God doesn't start something and he doesn't complete it. So my eternal security is not dependent on my holding on to God. God keeps me eternally secure. Yes. Amen to that, brother? Yes, brother. Amen. Uh, one more thing. I sure. will listen, listen off here. What do you do? Explain to me. First Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 1 to 5. I would like to... All right, let me see if I can if I can do it. I will do it if I can. I'll have to do it another time. First uh, Corinthians chapter one, chapter five. Five, yeah, verse uh, one to five. Okay, verse one to five. All yeah. right. Okay, can you read it? No, no. Yeah, I've got that. First Corinthians five, verse one to five. Thank you very much for the call. We really okay. appreciate you well, calling. Well, have a great night. All right, Pastor. First uh, Corinthians chapter five, verses one to five. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not as not so much as named among the gentiles that one should have his father's wife and ye are puffed up 
and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm guessing it's verse number five. Yeah. The, the, the whole thing there basically is this, the carnality that reigned in Corinth. Um, if we had time, we can do a, a background on the setting of the book and the level of depravity that was there in Corinth. The, 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 a word was coined back in the first century where a person was called a Corinthian, but when you name a man a Corinthian, it was like calling him a, a prostitute, basically. It was so common in those days. The gospel had preached, these people had come to faith in Christ and now into the church. But like so many people who have a pagan background and immoral background, their old habits began to creep into the church. So you have a young man in the church who has made a professional faith. Uh, <clears throat> and by the way, Paul doesn't dispute that the man is saved. Because Paul says, put him out of the church, his body will be destroyed, his soul will be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. But here's a young man that's in the church, and he is having relations with his stepmother. Uh, that's incest. He's having an a, a, a intimate sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, the church in Carmen, rather than discipline the young man, if you go further on, Paul is saying, you're, you're puffed up, you're, you're boasting, you're claiming how liberal you are and how tolerant you are. And Paul says, you know, I'm, I'm not even there, but I've heard this. And uh, when you gather and my spirit is there with you in, 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 uh, in form, you don't tolerate this. Put this young man on discipline. If he doesn't respond to discipline, put him outside the church. And then Paul goes on to say in verse uh, verse 4, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you gather together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan. The church is where God's people are. They're under the protection of God. When you put a man outside the church, that protection is gone. And that's why he must be put outside the church and excommunicated. That puts him now in the satanic realm because he now goes back into the world. And of course, the prince of the power of the air is Satan. So he's, he's lost the protection of the church and the body of Christ. And he's now delivered up to Satan because he's unrepentant. But notice that Paul says here that to deliver such a one of, uh, unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul doesn't dispute the man is saved. But Paul understands that you cannot stay in the church and tolerate a young man who is living in known sin and do not exercise discipline. That is not tolerance, that is arrogance. And God wants his people to exercise discipline in Scripture, especially when it comes to this matter of immorality. So this is an example of a young person who is in the church, coming from a pagan background, but he still have these um, remnants of paganism in him, and he's got a relationship going on with his stepmother. And the church, rather than deal with it, is closing a blind eye to it, boasting of their tolerance. Uh, and Paul considered it to be completely anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-discipline, anti-church, everything. And Paul claims, calls for this man to be put out of the church. And uh, upon repentance, he should be restored. And by the way, you'll find later on in Second Corinthians, uh, apparently the same young man has not repented, but the church is refusing to receive him back. And Paul said, no, 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 the guy's repentant. If you don't receive him back, no, he's repentant. You can actually send him into despair. 
So Paul calls upon them to uh, uh, repentance to restore him to the church to full fellowship. And that's what discipline is all about, by the way. Discipline always has a restorative uh, aspect. It's always about being redemptive and remedial. It's not to get people out of the church uh, per se is actually to put them in a state where you don't socialize, where you don't you don't you don't deal with them as brothers and sisters to make them ashamed of themselves to the point they're brought back to repent. But once they repent, we forgive them and we restore them. But until they repent and give signs of re- repentance, remorse, uh, the church makes a mistake to bring them back into fellowship and restore them to the full uh, fellowship within the church's members. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.14. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You're listening to That's Truth. If you have a question, you can call us at 1-268-462-7420. If you want to WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Or if you would rather comment your question on Facebook Live, you can do that. And it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy. No, could I, could I just add, <laughs> add here something uh, when it comes to this whole matter of discipline in the church? Uh, there are a lot of churches that do not practice church discipline anymore um, for some reason. I don't know why, but it is it is something it's not that, politically correct. Yeah. The other thing I've discovered about people when they know they're about to go on church discipline is that they disappear from the church. <laughs> now, in our church, according to our constitution, if you're away for uh, three months and you don't attend, you automatically have dismembered yourself. And I find that that's what happened with a lot of people. So the, what they do, they go away for a while, then they come back after a year and want to be restored to to, to, uh, uh, to membership. Now that's when the challenge is going to come as to um, how we deal with this kind of matters because you can't have people running away from the church to expect discipline. And then uh, a few years later, they come back in and expect that there are no consequences because all we've done in that case like that, we've emboldened them to keep doing the same thing again and again, and nobody learns from that exercise. So I think that pastors need to be very watchful in this matter, and uh, I myself got to be very watchful in that regard as well. But I hope that the church understands that we must not be played as a church. Uh, we have responsibilities to the members, and we have a responsibility to Scripture, and discipline is a, a, a part of that responsibility. Pastor Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 <clears throat> says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Pastor, I know that <clears throat> Christian feminists use that verse as a basis to say, look, we're all one in Christ, there shouldn't be any restrictive functional distinctions anymore. How would you respond to that? Well, this is one of the key verses uh, of the evangelical feminist movement. And they call this verse what they call the interpretive filter, that every other Bible passage that deals with male and female must be filtered through this, and that this text must be the determinative text that uh, helps to establish what the interpretation of those other passages are. Now, that, that is very, very significant. So you have one passage that is used now as a means of interpreting five other passages. It ought to be the reverse, okay? Yeah. But that's the feminist for you. They've gotten hold of one verse of Scripture, and they're making this a key verse, so I must interpret all the other Bible verses dealing with male and female functionality and relationships using this one verse. The thing I would say about this particular verse is that we need to understand what Paul is dealing with. Um, in this particular passage. And the best way to do that is to try to understand where this verse fits in to all that has preceded uh, what Paul wrote in the book of Galatians. 
In, in Galatians chapter 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is establishing his div- the divine origin of his apostleship and his message. Uh, he's defending the fact that he's a called apostle and that his message is from God. After giving that introduction, the Apostle Paul deals with the major concern he had in respect to the Galatians. It's called the Galatian heresy. And what the Galatian heresy was is basically this. These Galatians had come to faith and trust in Christ and received the Holy Spirit by faith and trust in Christ. They were baptized into the body of Christ. But you had Judaizers, which are part of this church. A Judaizer is a person who is a legalist. So they are now putting pressure on the Galatian believers, saying in essence that you need something more than faith alone. You need now to add the law of Moses uh, to have a complete conversion experience. So the Galatian problem is adding faith with the law as a means of redemption. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes to correct this. And basically what Paul is going to say, if we have to supplement the work of Christ, which we trust in by faith, by the process of the law, we have actually subverted the gospel and we have supplanted the gospel. You can't add the law to faith. He will ask the Galatians, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the law? Did you receive it by faith? Uh, His whole argument in the book of Galatians is vindicate the whole doctrine of salvation by faith alone. So when you, uh, the first two chapters then, because he's dealing with such an important subject, is to establish the divine origin of his apostleship and his message that he's going to bring. Now he's going to respond to the Galatian problem. And in chapters 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul gives a defense of justification by faith and faith alone. Uh, in chapter 3, he vindicates this doctrine and he shows you why this doctrine of, of faith, uh, salvation by faith alone is the biblical doctrine on redemption. And then in chapter 4, he's going to use several illustrations to, uh, to prove, uh, illustrate his point that he gave in chapter 3. So if you're going to understand that verse in chapter 3, verse 8, you need to understand that this entire chapter, uh, chapter 3, is about vindicating the doctrine of salvation by faith and justification by faith alone. And Paul appeals to seven things uh, to uh, um, vindicate that salvation by faith alone. The first thing he does in Galatians uh, 3, verse 1 to 5, he appeals to their experience, how they got saved. They got saved by faith. How they got the Holy Spirit. They got the Holy Spirit by faith. So Paul is saying, having begun by faith, you're now going to complete yourself by having works to it by the law. So his whole argument, from your own experience, you know that you got saved not by following the law, obeying the law. You got saved by putting your faith and trust in Christ. You find that in verse 1 to 5 of chapter 3. The second thing that Paul does in this chapter, from 6 to 9, Paul uses the example of Abraham. Was Abraham saved by faith, by the law? The law came, <coughs> excuse me, 430 years after Abraham was saved because it says uh, Abraham believed God and was counted into righteousness. So 430 years before the law came, Abraham got saved by faith. So the second argument, the example of Abraham, shows you that salvation is by faith and faith alone. And then in verses 10 to 12, uh, Paul shows you the expectation of the law. And what he means by that is, show, Paul shows that if a man was ever going to be saved by the law, he has to keep it perfectly. But no man can keep the law perfectly, because if you break one, you break all. And Paul says as a result of that, man fell under a curse. So all the law did, it didn't bring life, it brought a curse. So you can't appeal to the law for salvation. And then in verses 13 to 14, Paul shows you the efficacy of Christ's work, that Christ became a curse that the law brought so that we may be brought from under the curse. And then in ver- uh, verses 15 to 18, 
Paul talks about the preeminence of faith, uh, how important faith is in respect uh, to God's plan. And then in verses 19 to 25, Paul talks about the purpose of the law. And I, I want to give you some, to check off what Paul says about the law in verses 15 to 6, uh, 20, 25. He said, number one, the purpose of the law was to check and restrain sin. It came in because of transgression. See, That was the whole purpose of the law. Uh, it was temporary. It was in place until the seed would come. It was not designed to remain in place. It was there until the Messiah came. He said, number three, um, the way it was given, it was given in a, in a fair way because it was given through a mediator, Moses, and it was given through angels. However, the promise of faith was given directly by God to Abraham. There was no mediator. God himself spoke to, to uh, Abraham in respect to the promise about faith. And then he also said in verse 21 to 22, the law was not given for the purpose of giving life. Uh, that was never the purpose of the law. And then in uh, verse um, 22, he said the law prepared for the coming of the gospel and it kept the whole world in prison to sin. That was what the law was to serve. And then in verse 23, he said the law was a tutor uh, to, to bring us to the point where we were. It's like in, the, in those uh, first century world, uh, a slave was normally entrusted with the education of, of um, a child. And they performed the, world of the, the, the job of being a tutor. But when the child reached an adult age, he was no longer in need of a tutor. He became his own man. Uh, and that's what Paul is trying. He's using that kind of analogy there. And then um, the seventh thing that Paul does that Paul shows that he vindicates this whole matter of the um, justification by faith alone. He points out that uh, he points out about the believer's position in Christ. That's what verse uh, 23, 26 to 29 is. And what Paul argues here is that the believer upon justification is placed in Christ and that puts all believers as being sons of God. So a slave is a son of God. A uh, master is a son of God. A woman is a son of God. A male is a son of God. Uh, 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 <coughs> excuse me, a Gentile is a son of God. A, a Jew is a son. It, the distinction is gone now. We're all treated as sons of God. This is what Galatians chapter uh, 3 verse 28 is about. It's about our standing before God as a result of justification. It has nothing to do with functionality and roles. Paul deals with that in in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. He deals with that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And there are hints of that also in the book of Titus chapter 2. And of course, uh, the Bible in other portions show you very clearly that, for example, uh, the fact that Paul says neither male nor female. Uh, in Galatians, in Ephesians, Paul goes on later after Galatians. But remember that Galatians was one of the first books that were written by Paul. Ephesians written years after, yet Paul calls upon the, the man and reminds the woman that what? The man is what? The head. And that the woman is to submit to the man within marriage. And then Paul goes back to Genesis chapter 2. So here Paul wrote something in Galatians, and many years later he's now writing about roles in the family, and he established that there are roles in the family. So that person, that passage in Galatians chapter uh, um, um, three, three uh, verse 28, that cannot be used as a standard for defining roles in the home. And then we come to Timothy, which was written much later after um, 
Ephesians. And when Paul is dealing about the role of the man in respect to the church, uh, Paul uses an argument, and he, he points out very clearly that uh, the within the church, God calls men to serve in leadership roles, and not and women are not given the role of teaching, uh, having authority over men. So uh, they're dealing with two different things. One is dealing with the whole doctrine of justification by faith, establishing that we are before God equal as sons of God, whether it be Greek, whether it be Jew, whether it be male or female, whether it be slave or, or, or master. But in Ephesians, he's dealing with the home, and he sets out the functions and the roles. In Timothy, he's dealing with the function or roles within the church, and he makes a decision between the male and the female. <clears throat> You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean <coughs> Radio Lighthouse, a live call-in program on Tuesday evenings. We have just over 30 minutes left in the program. And if you have a question, you can call. The phone line is open. You can call one 462 7420 Let me give that to you again as you get out your phone and unlock it. one 462 7420 if you would rather send your question via WhatsApp or text, you can send it to the following number, 1-268-782-1454. 1-268-782-1454. Or if you're joining us on Facebook Live, you can comment your question or your comment, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Time across the Eastern Caribbean and in our studios in the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. On this Tuesday evening is 827. You're listening to the Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from Antigua, 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. Pastor, as we're talking about feminism, I know there are some radical movements out there Um and there's an aspect of feminism that pushes for freedom from clothing for women, uh, the desire for women to be able to go topless uh, such as freely as men can. And they would claim that modesty, as you and I would define modesty, is an attempt to keep women down. How would you respond to that? Well, it's clearly an unscriptural position. You read the book of Timothy, Paul calls for women to dress modestly. There's no question about that. After the fall, the first thing God did after the fall was to clothe Adam and Eve. Because because of sin, Adam, even Adam himself could not look upon his wife without having prurient desires there. And I mean, it's just natural. Any man that has red blood running in his veins as a true man, it's very difficult for any man to watch a naked woman without having evil thoughts. The problem between... One of the big problems is that I think that the women who are pushing this feminist movement, I think they have become so desensitized in the terms of their conscience that they have lived in so much sin because they can see things and it doesn't bother them. They don't understand the sensitivity that people have who have not been exposed to these kind of things, so they keep pushing it. The other thing that I think they fail to discover the distinction between a man and a woman, I think everybody would agree substantially, those who are reasonable, that a man is uh, attracted by sight. Yeah. Not a question about that. If women don't understand that, they're living in an in a, in a, a unreal world. Uh, women are generally attracted by touch. 
That's the difference. A woman could see a man with his shirt off, and I am not too sure I've heard many women saying, I crave his body, although, although you get the impression sometimes that they do. But generally speaking, uh, that is not the case. With a man, it's completely different. A man that sees a woman topless with her, her bubs and all this kind of stuff, I think his mind goes crazy because he's wired that way. God has made distinction between the male and the female, and we ought to respect those distinctions. The other thing I would like to say is that because men dress immodestly, should not be the basis of women saying, because you dress immodestly, I must dress immodest too, right? I mean, that's like I saying, because my dad was a drunkard, I can be a drunkard too, because mm-hmm. uh, my, you know, my, my dad was immoral, I can be immoral too. That's not the reason. You live how you live because you're guided by the principles of Scripture, irrespective of what other people are doing. My relationship with God is vitally important, and I'm going to be held accountable to God. I'm not, he's not going to hold me accountable for what somebody else do. It's how I live my life in accordance with the harmony of Scripture. So I think we need to be... <coughs> however, I would like to add one other thing. I think men, um, if they are commonly um, banging women for being immodest, I think they have to recognize as well that they too can be admonished in the way they dress. And the same way they want women to be respectful and exercise some kind of restraint, <coughs> I think that they ought at the same time to be aware that they too can be <coughs> a temptation to the opposite sex and uh, <coughs> in how they dress and how they appear. <coughs> Pastor, the secular feminist, uh or maybe not even just the secular feminist, the evangelical feminist would claim that the fall brought about gender distinctions and a functional difference. But since Christ's death reversed the effects of the fall, does that mean that the role distinctions have been abolished? And how would you respond to that? That is <coughs> part of the skewed interpretation that people are using today. Look, most of the problems we have today in when it comes to all these issues is that there's no real, rational basis of, of, of interpretation. They don't have a system of hermeneutics that is, is, is biblical. Uh, they're using ad hoc interpretations, and uh, the, 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 the interpretive scripture is so weird and so distorted that it leads to false conclusions. This is the same thing that's happening here with the, the people who are claiming that um, there was complete equality in the Garden of Eden, there were no distinctions. There are no functional roles whatsoever. And it's when the fall came that we have this inequality and we got this functionality. And, of course, that's a, that's a false um, statement. Number one, I pointed out to you already that when you go to Genesis, that the Apostle Paul and Timothy points out that the order of creation was not without significance. It was not a coincidence. The fact that God made Adam first and Eve after... God intended to establish a hierarchy within the Garden of Eden that the man would be the head and that the woman would, would uh, submit under his authority. Uh, the Bible is very, very, very clear about that. When you go to the Ephesians, Paul once again draws attention to this same matter that God has within the family, the male is the head, the leader, and the woman has to submit under his authority. When you go to Titus, you find that Titus tells the elderly women that they're supposed to teach the younger women how to submit to their own husbands. Now remember that Titus is written way after Ephesians, right? So if they're saying that those role distinctions were done away and functionality was done away, how do you explain Ephesians? How do you explain Timothy? How do you explain Titus? 
it doesn't make any sense. It completely contradicts Scripture to make that kind of a statement. Um, what I would add here is that what happened uh, with, the <coughs> with the fall is that it did not create the roles. What it did, it distorted the roles between the male and the female and how they function. I'll explain that to me. When you go to uh, Genesis, you're told that there are three results that uh, f- uh, came as a result of the fall. Uh, if you look at Genesis 3.16, yeah. could you read that? Yes. Genesis chapter <coughs> 3 and verse 16, 16 yeah. says, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So you notice three things happen as a result of the fall. Number one, you will get childbearing, but no, you do it with what? Sorrow. Pain and sorrow. Yeah. Number two, um, your desire should now be to your husband. We've got to understand what that means, and I want to explain what that means tonight, right? Because it doesn't mean that you are going to love your husband, and now you're going to, uh, you're going to fall under his leadership and uh, bow down to him. That's not what it means. It means the very opposite of that. I'll, I'll prove that to you shortly. Huh. And thirdly, he he's going rule. to rule over you. Yeah. Now, you function... Where and that word rules is a very strong rule now. This is a dictatorial rule now. This is what happened as a result of the fall. But if you go back before the fall, three things. You had the mandate to childbearing. So childbearing was already a mandate in place before the fall. Right? Be fruitful multiply. But what would happen now as a result of the fall that childbearing brings pain. See? Two, you had a, a, a husband and wife relationship before the fall, one of oneness. The two become one. That's not going to be oneness any longer. The woman is now going to usurp. Her desire now is for the man's authority. That's what uh, we're going to explain to you shortly. And then thirdly, rather than um, being an egalitarian rule, it now becomes a dictatorial. He now rules over you. Those are the three things that result from the fall. But before the fall, there was a mandate for childbearing. There was a husband and wife relation of oneness. And there was a hierarchical order, according to Paul, that God made man first. So that was all in place. That didn't come after the fall. What came after the fall are these three things. One, childbearing in pain. Yeah. Right. Two, the husband and wife relationship would now be distorted with a desire for her to control him. Let me show you how, what, what that really means. See that word desire? Mm-hmm. You know where that word is, all, is, is found? That word is, is found in uh, chapter 4, where God uh, came to, 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 um, to um, Cain and uh, Abel, um, when he says, you know, um, in that particular passage, he says to him, if you do well, you're, you're, everything will be okay, but if you don't, s- sin laugh at your door and desires to have you. It's the same word, right? I don't know if you remember the account when the Lord came to um, and, and told him those words, that if you do well, um, everything will turn out well for your countenance would, would, would be lifted up. But if you don't do well, sin laugh at your door and its desire is to control you, to get control of you. It's the same word there. So this word here, desire, doesn't mean that she know uh, her, her, her feelings is towards her husband. It's the same word. Same word, the, the, the desire to control. The same way sin will desire to control you. This is exactly what it's talking about here. That's what the fall did. It distorted relationships. It did not establish relationships. Those were established before. But now, as a result of the fall, the woman is now desiring 
demands authority, just like sin desired to control uh, um, uh, Cain it was, yeah. right? So when you take the word and use it in the context, because the Bible interprets the Bible, and the next time that word is used is where sin is trying to control Cain. And the Lord tells him, if you're not careful, this desire is to control you. That's the same word that is used here in connection with the wife. It becomes distorted now. The order was established, but what has happened now is that between the, the male and the female, between the husband and wife, that order is distorted now. Rather than he, wanted, and this is why the next verse says, he will do not what now? He comes down hard on you. He, was, he will rule you, see? dictatorial world as a result of your trying to usurp his authority his response now is I'm going to hold you down and I'm going to rule you in a dictatorial way so the, the interpretation uh, of the passage if you understand what, the, what, what Paul is teaching and what the book of Genesis is teaching it, you see it's a, a false uh, interpretation to suggest that is a result of the fall that this functional order of male and female, they were on par and equality and there was no distinction. There was a hierarchy before that. But what happens as a result of the fall is the distortion happened now where they're now competing for control. Right? And now he his response to be, I'm gonna now control I'm gonna rule over you. And that's where and by the way, if you look at what is happening on planet Earth, you'll see exactly that's exactly how it's, how it's ruled out today. And that's where you've got all the f- problems in the home and the family women rebelling against men being the leader they want to take over the past they want to rule him and he's responding rebelliously and arrogantly and sometimes very dictatorially it, that's a result of the fall but it has nothing to do uh, that the fall brought about this functional distinction etc it was there in the garden of eden long before the fall took place but after the fall it did not create these dysfunctions it distorted the functions that were already there and that's where we are today and redemption by the way Christ's redemption is going to ultimately bring about a complete salvation of the, the order that is here that's distorted but at, at, at redemption today that's only going to take place when he returns we still have s- sinful natures. We're still going to have these kind of struggles. So what we do, we go back to God's biblical order and fall in line with God's biblical teaching so that a wife must understand that her husband is her leader. She must learn to submit to him. But he must understand that she only follows a leader who demonstrates love and affection to her. So his job now is to lead uh, sacrificially <coughs> for her. When she sees that, she doesn't have a problem submitting. So the thing is to go back to the biblical model that we have in Scripture and not twist Scripture to fall in line with what my bias is when it comes to uh, my interpretation. Pastor, <coughs> so many of the topics that we've discussed down through the years on this program, it, if you trace it back to the attack on the book of Genesis and especially the first three chapters of Genesis, you can see how that attack is used to undermine the biblical worldview of that particular topic. Am I connecting dots that shouldn't be connected to say that that attack on Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 uh, goes along to further the feminist agenda? Look, I, I am, you know, it's, it's only as you look and reflect on these things and you begin to realize that these are not accidents. Uh, it is very significant that the challenge to the book of Genesis, especially the first three chapters, the historicity of those three chapters, if you read any uh, liberal theological book, any modernist book, uh, you know which books they attack first? The book of Genesis, the first three chapters. They say it's an allegory, it's myth, myth, it's myths, etc., etc. The attack on the book of Genesis is attack 
on the very basic fundamental principles that are at the core and the center of Christianity. All the basic seed doctrines you find in the um, New Testament, the seed of those doctrines are actually in the book of Genesis. So when you obliterate the book of Genesis and you undermine the credibility of the book of Genesis, you are actually undermining the Christian faith itself because it is grounded on these basic fundamental principles. For example, um, take Genesis chapter 2. Who would have thought that when Paul is dealing with marriage, and he, he would talk about in, 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 in the book of Ephesians, um, uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter 5 for just a minute, interesting uh, what Paul says <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, I got it. Okay, if you go down to the, the end um, of that same chapter, um, Read from verse 22. Okay. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it unto himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself." For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now read verse 32 very carefully. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See? The marriage was one of those hidden mysteries in the Bible that was eventually to be an analogy between Christ and the church. Now, nobody here would tell me that the believer and Christ are on the same level of equality. We are under Christ, under his authority, he's our head. That's what Paul is saying, that marriage was designed to reflect that order, that hierarchy. And, of course, both have responsibilities. The wife's job is to acknowledge the headship of the husband, to submit unto his leadership. The man's responsibility is to love his wife. Not only that, to nourish her, provide for her, cherish her, make her feel valuable. See, And then Paul wrote in and said, uh, you know, therefore shall a man leave his... And then he said, I speak of a mystery concerning the church. This is one of the great mysteries. So that is where uh, we need to be very, very clear that... Um, Interpret the Bible, let the Bible interpret itself, and don't be carried away with modernistic thinking and the feminist movement that have this twisted distortion that there must not be any kind of functional difference between them. So what has happened now, Nathan, is once they get rid of, within the home, there's not a, a head, there's not to be submission, they bring that within the church now. They said there must not be a pastor, women can be pastors, women can be this. And that's what happens when you surrender this one it naturally flows into the other. So if there's no functionality now in the home, there's no functionality within the church. And that's where when you move away from truth and you fall into error, 
it infiltrates and begins to affect the church. And that's why we must take a stand on these biblical issues. I don't think I've ever seen that verse in that light the, to wrap up chapter 5 there, uh, talking about it being a great mystery and had it explained that way. Adds a lot of depth and a powerful way to summarize well, But let me show you another illustration. I mean, if you do Bible typology, for example, you know, uh, Adam came from, Eve came from where? From Adam. His, his side, his ribs, basically. Yeah. You remember that the church virtually came out of the side. He was wounded with his spear in his side, in, mm -hmm. in his heart, basically. All of this is, look, I am convinced that one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is the Word of God, if you were to study typology, it could not just be there. Uh, and you don't, you, when you see the, the, the correspondence between the two, you marvel at the wisdom of God, the, how we could have projected so far into the future and understood this analogy. And I think anybody gets to study typology, it confirms your faith in the complete inspiration, authenticity of the Word of God, that you're not following cunning divine fables, that this is indeed the Word of God. Pastor, do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share to summarize the the feminist movement, what the Christian worldview is on the feminist movement? Look, I would I would just say that I think that women um, have a right to fight for certain rights. For example, I don't question that uh, for a long time uh, in the workplace they weren't having equal pay for that. I think the the idea of maternity leave to get a chance to spend with the, with the children when the child is born, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I think all of these are, are worth fighting over. I think the idea of the abuse of women as well, I think that's an area that women should fight for. The idea you just stay in a marriage even though the man is killing you. Uh, I would never advise anybody those, those kind of things. So I think that uh, we men substantially brought a lot of this upon ourselves and I think women are now reacting. But I think the pendulum is going too far way too far. We overreact on everything. And that is bringing us to the point now where we are um, more going in the area of the secular extremism than bringing us back to what the, the biblical teaching is. And I would advise uh, Christian women who believe in women's rights in terms of equality and fairness and voting and all these type of things and the matter of abuse, you do have a right to represent women in that regard. But avoid the extremism and uh, always point out the biblical position and don't go beyond Scripture because when you go beyond Scripture, you're now going into error and uh, it doesn't all go well for the church when you're leading people astray in that direction. The other thing I would say to, to women who are fighting for these kind of things, remember that you've got a daughter and your attitude towards your husband is going to be reflected in your daughter's attitude towards her, her husband. If you're not setting a good example of submitting his leadership and uh, respecting him, uh, and uh, uh, etc., it's not going to automatically happen in your child's life. You must be a model to her and an example to her of how family relations are supposed to be, what a husband-wife relation is supposed to be, and you ought to set the biblical model for her. If you come from a broken home, is there hope for reestablishing that in your heritage? Well, this is the wonder of the, the Christian faith. Um, you know, the medical model of human problems is that problems are chemical cause and so on and so forth. The Bible gives you hope because the Bible says it's a behavioral problem. It's something you've learned. If you've, it's a learned behavior, you can unlearn that behavior by following the biblical model. That's what the Bible says. What? Take off 
put and on. put on, yeah. right? Uh, that's the biblical model for dealing with something. You stop doing whatever you're doing, and you put on the new biblical principle in place. So I'm a custom rebellion. I'm a custom um, being rude. I'm no longer respectful to my husband. I don't submit to him. The whole whole house knows that I'm in, you know. Well, the, when you come to the biblical conviction that that's not the order, you now have a conversation with your husband and with the family because they've seen it. And you say to them, listen, I've made some terrible mistakes here, but I want to live under the biblical principle of Scripture, and therefore I want to confess my behavior was wrong, my attitude was wrong. I would like to follow the biblical model, and I apologize to my husband, I apologize to my children. And then you say something like this, you know, I'm not going to be perfect. There are times when I can revert to that old behavior again, but you need to help me, to remind me of my commitment to the biblical model. I think if we do that, and by the way, remember it takes about six weeks to change behavior. So it's not going to happen overnight like that. You're going to make mistakes again and again. You want to assume the responsibility of leadership again, but you have to curtail that. And if you were to do that for about six weeks, you will fall in line with the biblical model and transformation takes place. The other thing is this, Nathan, we have the Holy Spirit in us. This is not a battle that we fight alone. God's Spirit is there to sanctify us. And with His help, with the guidance of God's Word, the support of God's people, we can bring about change and transformation in our own lives. Pastor, is it enough for me just to be religious and be involved in my church? I think uh, the reason why people are, um, it might be a good thing in the long term as well, that we are now witnessing um, a, a drift away from the church. I think it's probably showing up those people that for a period of time that they went on with a ride and they've discovered the right is taken nowhere, it has no meaning, they have no purpose. I hope that wakes them up to the fact that what is important is not just the church, it's a relationship with Christ, and start working on the relationship with Christ. Because if you're just depending on the church to keep you going, you can never keep going in this battle. You need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So just being religious and attending church and saying Mass and um, taking communion and maybe getting involved, it will exhaust you in the process. It's like I operating on fuel, but I don't have any resource to recover from. So I become drained and drained and drained because there's no connection with the source of power. And eventually, we begin to fade away. It may be a, a, a terrible thing for the church that is happening, but it might be a good thing in the sense to awaken people. Listen, this thing, I've been going on, but I've just been pretending for a while. It's not real. I, I don't have the power to do it. And it might be a wake-up call for those people to actually start over again and start the right way, a relationship with Jesus Christ. For the listener that says, you know what, I think you're talking about me, Pastor. How do I start a relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, I will tell you how I started. I went to church, and I heard a message preached, and I came on a tremendous conviction. Um, I went back home, I got into my bedroom, and I had a conversation with God. Uh, I, I told him exactly what I felt. I said, God, if what this guy preached, I'm not a Christian. There's no way my life has been changed. And I said to him, you know, tonight, I want this to be the turning point in my life. I want Christ to become my Savior, and I want Him to save me. And I committed to Him that if He were to save me that night, that my life would be committed to Him. That was when I was 16, I'm now 65. I can still remember that night when it happened. And I you know, I tell people that you know when you're saved, when you get married, you know when you got married. You know, yeah. No question you got married. When you get saved, you will know that point in your life when there was a real radical transformation in your life, and that was the turning point in your life. That was my turning point. 
in my life. And I would say to any person who is going through this doldrums and um, this thing that really has lost meaning and purpose, get along with God. Nothing you tell God will surprise God because He's watching you. He knows everything about you. Just lay the tables on the, the cards on the table, let Him know exactly how, how you've been living without Him, without purpose, without me just going through the emotions, whatever it is. You need pardon, you need forgiveness, you need a relationship, and you want to start that relationship today with Him. And having established that, go on with Him each day. Spend some time with Him, talk with Him, download to Him. Make it something that is now intimate. Not something you come to church to be pumped up and then to go back, but it continues to be a relationship with Him. That's the way to start. How do I make sure that whether it's an audible prayer or a prayer in my mind as I communicate with God, how do I make sure I say the right thing or follow the correct formula? What I would say to you is, is like Hannah, Hannah was praying and she wasn't saying a word. She was just praying in her spirit. And of course, uh, poor Eli... Uh, without any spiritual insight, he thinks that the woman is drunk. Yeah. But she's having a, a, a heart talk with God without uttering words. You can pray with God, and, and uh, you don't have to worry about the words. What really matters is that you establish the fact that you know that what, how you're living is wrong. You've been trying it the wrong way. Uh, you want his part. You must have pardon and forgiveness. Because you've been living a hypocritical life, you need to get your life right with God, asking for forgiveness and pardon, and for a restored relationship with Him because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Christ is the important factor in all of this. You're turning your life over to Him. You want to become His disciple. You want to become His follower. And you're trusting Him by faith. Now, when you do that, you're not going to get some kind of a loud shout. You're not going to get some kind of a bang. Some kind of pyrotechnics, fireworks begin to happen. Uh, but you will have an assurance in your heart, and you begin to see your life transform. And the Holy Spirit that God gives you at conversion, He begins to do the work in your life. And you will discover that change as you live day by day dependent upon Him and listening to the Word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit teaching you what the Word of God says as you move in that direction of obedience. He gives you more truth, more knowledge, more truth, more knowledge until you begin to wonder what a, a, a transformation has taken place in your life. Remember the Bible said, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New a new creature. You must be a new person, and you will know when you're a new person, when you've had a real, genuine, authentic conversion experience, when you put your faith and trust in Christ and repent of your sins. What about for the individual who says, but I was saved at five years old, I hadn't gone out and murdered, I wasn't involved in pornography, I wasn't uh, a drunkard, so I don't have that extreme, horrible life and that extreme change that Christ has brought to me. Um, well, we're not on extreme change, but you would know your ch change in your attitude, your thoughts. For example, can I, uh, you know, to my mind, it's a greater work of God to preserve a person from these things hmm. than it is to go through all this ruinous experience. And it always affects your life. Even though you're forgiven and pardoned, there are things that you would have done after that you would regret all of your life. You wish you never had that. I don't think anybody should apologize that God has preserved them and put them in a good Christian family, didn't have to go through all this sin and all this iniquity. But there would be changes that you'd be aware of, The uh, maybe a way you think, your thought life, etc., etc. Uh, so I, I would not in any way uh, hope that anybody listening to us would be regretting that I didn't go the path of the prodigal son to find out what sin is like. No, God has been merciful to you to put you in a Christian home, and you've had a good example, you're, you're, and they have helped you to preserve you from a lot of pain and needless guilt 
that we carry who didn't have Christian parents. So rejoice in the fact that God has put uh, your Christian parents in, in, in your life to preserve you from a lot of this terrible, horrible iniquity that we have to grapple with even years after we've been saved. Pastor, we have two minutes left in the program. Can you speak a little bit to the fact of the role of repentance and conviction? I hear so many people today say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they aren't living like a Christian. Yeah, I think the mistake that was made by the church is to tell people to come to Jesus and say a prayer. I really think that is, I think in eternity we will discover the amount of hurt and damage we've done uh, by making that a little formula and repeat a little prayer after me, etc., etc. Look, when a person comes to faith in Christ, we ought to be able to tell God exactly what we want. God knows we don't have to have any pretty fancy prayer. We ought to be able to know that we need to ask God forgiveness. We ought to be able to pray forgiveness. We don't have to go into all the details, but we certainly should know. You know, the guy that went up to the temple to prayer, it was a very simple prayer. God be merciful to me. But what he is really saying, my, my sins have loaded me so down that all I need from you is mercy because God reads his heart already. He didn't have to say, well, I committed this, I committed that, I committed that. Blah, blah, blah. No, he's coming. He wants mercy. Why do you need mercy? You need mercy because you're so overwhelmed by the depths of your sin that all you feel that could save you now is the mercy of God. So I don't think that, I do feel that people need to understand that conversion uh, begins with a sense of sin and a need of repentance. What? Why would I want to come to Christ if I don't have any conviction about my sin whatsoever? And that's where we need to get under the song of the gospel in a good gospel preaching church so the word of God can be preached and you give the spirit, the sword of the spirit to work in my life so that he brings me under conviction. I'm not going to come under conviction if I'm under the lights if I'm away and partying, I'm, I'm, I'm drowning out the voice of God. I have to be in a place where God can truly speak to me and the Holy Spirit has a tool, which is the sword of the Spirit. So I need to come under the Word before I will come under conviction. Is it possible to become a true believer, have a true relationship with Jesus Christ and not have experienced that conviction and repentance? There has to be repentance. Uh, Christ came preaching what? Repentance. John came preaching what? Repentance. There has to be repentance. And to be, have repentance, there must be conviction. And the Holy Spirit will come. He'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. So we have to understand the Holy Spirit has to do that convicting work to bring us to repentance. Thank you for joining us tonight for this episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens. I trust that you will keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. You heard the voice of Pastor Murphy teaching throughout the evening. If you have any questions about what the Bible says about salvation, feel free to give us a call here at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. God bless you and have a great night. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.59. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www. 
www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world, or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.